society, sense of our language, our religion, um, our thought process, all these are uh, artifices that are created by us. And so uh, when we grasp these things as ultimate reality, then of course we, we are expecting and demanding and uh, something that it, that it cannot be. And we want ultimate happiness, fulfillment and peace and harmony and justice and truth and all the best from conventional reality. And of course we, uh, we're, we're bound for disappointment. Because the conventions are, they're, they're artificial. They're, they can be used skillfully or if we just are attached to them blindly out of ignorance then we're endlessly being uh, harming ourselves, hurting each other through the conventional realities that we're involved with. So remember, monasticism is a conventional reality. And it's to be used for seeing things as they are, for seeing the Dhamma, not for just uh, attachment to as an end in itself or as a, an identity, a new identity for one's ego. All religions are conventions and then so therefore there then we can get into endless fights, quarrels around religion, as we can see just the sectarianism that occurs in any religion. When I went to Thailand this time in the beginning of December, the first thing that confronted me when I arrived in Bangkok was people were talking about uh, there's a a kind of rumor going around that there might be two Sangharajas. Thailand only has one Sangharaja, which is the kind of supreme patriarch of Buddhism in Thailand. <clears throat> but the present Sangharaja is very old and not very well, and probably will die soon. And then the, the who will be the next one? And then there's two, there's two sects in Thailand of Theravada. The Mahanikai, which is the Nikaya we, we belong to, and the Tamayuta, which is a, but they're both joined at the top to the Sangharaja, and then they're supposed to alternate, like the present Sangharaja is a Tamayutika monk. So the next one should be Mahanikai. And it happens to be one of my, the, the monk that I know very well, Somdet Puttajan at Watsakat, who, who is, uh, uh, probably that will be the, the next Sangharaja. And he's been very, very helpful to, to us. Most of you don't know who he is, but he's, uh, uh, takes an interest, especially in the Wat Bapong Sangha, Ajahn Chah uh, tradition, and also in the, in the monasteries like this one, or the branch monasteries from Wat Bapong. But then there's, there's a lot of politics and competition in any conventional situation. Uh, and most of it I don't know anything about or I don't even want to know anything about it. <laughs> but then, uh, and then, then people would say, Buddhists, Buddhist monks shouldn't be like that. They shouldn't be divided into two sects and, and compete for, uh, or, or tend to fraction off or break away, fragment. Buddhist monks should be peaceful and harmonious. 
of course, they're right, isn't it? Buddhist monks should be. <laughs> but uh, this is the way it is. <laughs> so the, the way things should be is always ideal, you know. But the way it is, is like this. And so with meditation, we're, you know, we're not trying to, to, uh, to make everything perfect or ideal on the conventional level because we'll never succeed. But to begin to to open and recognize the way it is. Which in this sense is not a kind of, it might sound like a kind of fatalistic resignation, a kind of passive resignation to fate. It can sound like that, and oftentimes Western people interpret it like that, but that's not at all it. The way it is is, is not, uh, you know, a passive indifference, but it's an attentive recognition of, of this moment. That uh, in oneself, in one's own uh, body-mind situation at this time, there can be all kinds of divisions taking place. A conflict between your ideals of, and your emotions. You know, you, you want to be a, a good monk or nun and, and, uh, do all the right things and be a credit to the Buddha sasana and then at the same time emotionally feeling fed up and annoyed and and critical and discontented with it all. So it begins in the mind itself, and the divisions are on the, you know, because the human state is one of five khandhas. The Buddha put it into these five categories. So then these, these things are operating in their own way, and when we attach to them as an identity, like if we attach to our ideals, say, our intellect, say, we can create uh, ideas of how things should be. So we have this, you know, we, we're very idealistic anyway, Western society, uh, you know, is is uh, it's created on the idea of democracy and freedom and justice and fairness and so forth. We should be compassionate and peaceful and not be selfish. These are ideals. Uh, democracy is is very is an ideal. Communism, socialism. Uh, uh, human rights, uh, justice, and um, fairness. Things should be right, and and we should try to uh, every wrong that arises, we should make right. Every this is this this is the thought process, isn't it? This is the the way we think. Right and wrong, good and bad. So very reasonable people, people that like to think a lot and have developed reason, you know, uh, are, you know, very impressive because they can speak in, in a very righteous way. And, uh, and they are right. You know, it should, according to the ideal world. But then uh, the realities of being human, we're emotional creatures. And uh, emotional experience is not reasonable, is it? It, it is, you know, you, our reasonable, our reasonable abilities, our reasoning abilities tend to judge our emotions. So emotions of greed, from greed, hatred, and delusion, we feel lust, and we feel uh, anger and 
hatred and resentment and jealousy and fear and confusion and insecurity, doubt, we worry about things. And so these emotions that we can reason, you know, be reason, try to be reasonable about our emotions, we tend to suppress them. The emotional world is just, you know, we create an identity that there's something wrong with us, that we're maladjusted or psychologically disturbed or have different ways of looking at, at our emotional life that tends to be very judgmental. And then the physical body itself, the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air. It's, uh, it has its own needs, its own kind of, uh, it's a, an earthbound condition. It's, it needs to be fed and we need, the body needs nourishment, needs rest. Uh, is protection. So in the the body, the the uh, the the uh, emotional body, the intellectual one. Well, the Buddha was teaching about sila samadhi panya and developing the eightfold path. The uh, the we can. Align the body always with a sila, like here in the monastic life in Amravati, we, we, we uh, train ourselves with the precepts, moral precepts. So that the, the body is not just being neglected or despised or uh, indulged in, but it's, uh, it's, it's being uh, used for non-violence, we're, 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 uh, we're, not, we're not. Our intention is not to harm any living creature, and not to use the body to steal or we're celibate. Yeah, so we're we're not actively involved in the uh, acting on the sexual energies of the body and speech, samawaja. refrain from using our speech for harm in harmful or uh, ways that, that either deceive or abuse or hurt other people or other things. Then uh, and say five precepts with the Surah Meiraya, just the restraining refraining from taking things that that uh, Influence consciousness, distort conscious experience, such as drunkenness or drugs that uh, change our consciousness to to uh, something that we don't usually experience. So, you know, this is a time where people are, are taking drugs, and there's a great problem with that everywhere, all over the world. Because uh, ordinary consciousness is is hard to live with, and that just the, the consciousness in the in the ordinariness of daily life. We want uh, we want happiness. We want excitement and uh, adventures, romance, uh, violence, and and so forth. Anything that excites or stimulates the emotions, longing for some kind of drug that will give us a kind of permanent state of bliss and happiness. In order to, to get out of the dreariness that we create in our minds, in our, uh, in our lives, so notice in in this life here in the winter's retreat in a Buddhist monastery, uh, the, where people are, 
at this time. We're not here for romance, adventure, excitement. Uh, we're not here for, you know, to to uh, find happiness in, uh, in the world, but to understand, to to take this time to really look, investigate, observe, and witness the way it is. So, in meditation, you're probably very well aware of how, you know, one can, after the kind of initial uh, defilements of, of uh, greed and, and anger, fall away, then we're faced with a lot of dreary states like tinamito or sleepiness and dullness and and utacha kukucha, the kind of uh, worried restlessness and the and wichikicha uh, doubt. In monastic life, and I think this is uh, this brings this up very very clearly in 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 our lives because uh, when I was a layman, you know, when things became boring or when there was uncertainty or worry or dreariness in my life, I always would do something to try to excite the mind. Remember, as a as a lay person, I was very much interested in having an interesting life, uh, being an interesting person, having interesting things to do, meaningful, exciting, uh, adventurous, romantic, having a, a fascinating lifestyle. Uh, that this was uh, this seemed to be the 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 plus ultra of human existence. If you could. Just get out of the dreariness that you saw your parents living in. My parents seemed to live the most boring life. And so I, I remember thinking, I'm not going to live my life like they do. So, spending good part of my youth seeking these, these uh, kind of uh, superlative experiences, uh, interesting things to do and hobbies and so forth, uh, adventures and whatnot, then of course, you know, one, it just goes on one thing to another. You know, you, you have to continually kind of keep trying to boost it up and make it more, you know, get more, make it better or what what is interesting right now tomorrow can be very boring and uh, so that the the this desire for pleasure for for this this happiness or this bliss or this excitement and the fear of its opposite always frightened that life you're going to be stuck in some position that that is boring or painful or ugly or dreary, dull and stupid. So they, these extremes that we create in the, through, through thinking, isn't it? Through the conditioned realm the, that we're experiencing now is a realm of extremities. So it's, you know, it's day and night, it's winter, it's summer, it's male and female, it's, it's uh, good and bad, right and wrong. The dualism that we create and interpret experience through is uh, through thought. You know, thinking is, is uh, something that we create. And uh, our language is a is a is an artifice is created to express experience or communicate with each other, and we ju- make judgments like uh, we modern society is a very critical one. Modern Western society, we are educated to to be critical of things, to compare, 
to analyze, criticize, to we can create the superlatives, how things should be and how things shouldn't be. We absolutize these too. We want absolute rightness, absolute goodness, absolute happiness. You know, we, we, we want a permanent state of goodness, happiness, security. So in, in our way of thinking, we create these heaven, these perceptions of heaven as some kind of permanent happiness. When we die, if we've been good, we go to a permanent, eternal heaven where we're happy all the time. And then, of course, that, that, it, but if we don't quite make it, then we're condemned to a hell where we're permanently, absolutely miserable forever. Because the, these are maybe slight exaggerations, but the logic is there, isn't it? The thought process does that. Thinking is linear. You have one thought at a time. You know, so you have A and then B and then C. Uh, so that when we attach to thinking and and interpret life through words, through thoughts, through ideas, through ideals, then then of course the world we create is is uh, is never is is always going to disappoint us. That's why some of the the worst cynics were probably once uh, very high-minded idealists. So the the Buddha emphasis on awareness, on awakened awareness, waking up and paying attention, in other words, the way it is, noticing, observing the way it is. Not a, not according to ideas about how things should be or com, or complaining about the way it is because it isn't what you want or like or think should be. But just noticing the the experience that we have at this present moment is like this. Feeling happy is like this. Feeling sad is like this. Feeling confused or is like this. So when we say like this, it's 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 uh, pointing. It's get a, it's the encouragement is to look. What is it like? What is sadness really like? What is it? You know, investigate. What is it? Where do you feel it in your body? What what is it? Not figure out why you're sad. You know, do you think? You should be happy and shouldn't be sad. Then you then you start, you know, thinking there's something wrong with you, and because you should be happy but you're not. And why? Why am I so sad? When Ajahn Sumedho is so happy, <laughs> you think I'm happy all the time, probably. But uh, that's not it. It's not, we're not saying you should be happy here. But whatever, whatever emotion you happen to be experiencing, it's turning to it, recognizing it, receiving it. Not analyzing how it got there or why you feel this way, but, but use, but noticing it's like this, that when you really receive the conditioned realm, fully receive it, then you notice it's true nature. It's changing. It's anicca. That sadness is not is not permanent. It's not absolute. That it, it well when you really observe it, not critically or analytically or or with reason or logic, but recognizing, receiving it. Or what it is, it is the way it is, and then, then the uh, the obvious uh, recognition of change. It's it's you can't you can't find anything permanent in it. You might think it's permanent when you don't receive it, because you you maybe you see yourself as a sad person, as you've kind of settled on that identity, 
And so you you define yourself with these uh, adjectives. And so you think you're that way all the time. But when you really observe with attention, with sati, sampatanya, this awareness, this uh, embracing awareness, what is it like? You know? Is there anything permanent in happiness or sadness or, you know, fear, anger, greed, worry, anxiety, depression. So these are like questions I'm asking. I'm to question, not to... Uh, because sometimes in the vipassana world we we we're good at understanding the ideas, but uh, but then we project the ideas onto experience. And I've heard so many people say, "Well, all conditions are impermanent." There's a kind of dismissal of the conditioned realm, but that's that's grasping the idea of impermanence and then projecting it onto your experience. What what I'm trying to point to at this moment is uh, encourage you to really notice impermanence is like this change uh, we live in this realm of, of incessant change changiness movement energy it's an energetic realm the sensitive realm all this uh, the, the body is changing all the time the senses you know the, the sense organs that we have, they're, they're receiving, they're being impinged on, uh, you know, all the time there's some, something happening. Try to hold on to any, any, anything on that, in the, in the sense realm, on the emotional realm, intellectual realm, or even physical realm. Try to make it permanent. You know, try to make it stay. You could make yourself really perfect, physically, you know, perfect physical specimen, an emotionally perfectly normal, well-adjusted, emotionally balanced, mature, and very intelligent intellect. If you could, if you could achieve all that, you still couldn't sustain it. It also falls apart anyway. <clears throat> like the body gets old, you, when you get older, your intellect, you, you can't remember things so well. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, emo- and life will always present emotional challenges to us. The, sometimes you might think you're really balanced now emotionally and you've got your act together and you, You've uh, you've had all the necessary therapies and so forth to really, you know, feel confident emotionally to face life. And then, to, then there's always going to be a challenge, even when you're at your best, because things happen to us that we, you know, we have no control over. This universe that we're living in, and it is. Uh, Things change that we have, and things happen. There's wars, there's deaths, there's loss, there's earthquakes and and uh, fires and cyclones and whatnot. So this realm of uh, the conditioned realm is is basically, you know, a realm of continuous ongoing change. So what what is it that can notice change? You know, if if uh, you know this is a question to ask yourself for investigation, not to get a, a a kind of clever answer for the question, but it's more of a question to inquire into experience here and now. When, when, when you're feeling angry, you know, you know there's, you know you're angry, don't you? Sometimes anyway. (laughs) 
some people when they are obviously angry will deny it <laughs> I have I've been known to do that <laughs> in the past but uh, <laughs> but when you're really looking you know and if some some the conditions arise somebody insults you or it's maybe it's a kind of righteous anger maybe they're being totally irresponsible and inconsiderate and insensitive to you and so you feel really angry with them and you're righteous too because it's true they're really insensitive and inconsiderate and irresponsible but then when you look at that the feeling the the reality of of the anger and the present now what is it that can see anger that knows anger that knows that there's this indignant righteous indignation this so then this is a way of investigating emotional experience so that the anger changes when you really look at anger and the feeling of it the energy the heat the, or however you experience that emotion in the present when you really notice it and receive it you you're aware of its changingness it has no kind of it's so unstable in itself you know it, it it is it's so dependent on conditions but that which is aware of the anger is that angry does awareness get angry and so investigating like this inquiring into the way it is you know i've my own experience with doing this is awareness doesn't get angry awareness isn't angry but uh, awareness is a, there's awareness of anger when when i don't know the difference when i'm just when i'm heedless in other words not aware then i become angry person because i i just the pattern just grasping the angry feeling and i become like that and i start speaking or acting uh through that emotion and and i really can believe in it you know that you are irresponsible and insensitive to me and you shouldn't be and that's what i'm right you know you are you you you, you just lack that kind of proper respect and sensitivity and and you shouldn't be like that and i'm absolutely right <laughs> and then i keep fueling it no no i get myself well wound up because i'm right and you're that makes you wrong so this is what what you know we hear this all the time in ourselves and we see it operating in the world the indignation sense of they shouldn't be like that you shouldn't have said that and the terrible things that go on in the world this time very you know arouses indignation anger resentment but now we're not trying to judge who's right and who's wrong and try to you know have a, a modus vivendi of some sort but where we're just noticing anger or being right feeling righteously indignant is like this so we we receiving the energy of that emotion we're noticing we're we're allowing it to be what it is we're not we're not judging it then we have to if we start judging it then we've lost it. we're back into into its power again so with awareness sati sampatanya we 
we're paying attention to the feeling or the power or the energy, whatever way you describe emotional experience. Not trying to figure out who's, you know, why or whose fault it is or anything like that, but just using the situation for, as an opportunity to understand the nature of conditioned phenomena. So that applies to all emotions, from, from the more passionate ones to the duller ones, to sleepiness, to uh, just uh, kind of anxiety, worry, doubt, uncertainty, fear, the kind of primary, kind of primal emotions such as uh, lust and anger and fear. So, then, then this sati sampatanya, panya, or wisdom, manifests. And so, you know, it's like wisdom is natural to us. It's it's not a not a, an acquisition that you get through studying philosophy in a university. It's it's a, you know it's a it's natural to this human condition if we if we pay attention if we if we are aware and we we observe the way it is so in in terms of dhamma this word dhamma that is uh, the truth of the way it is translated into english and the all conditions are impermanent so this is a, a kind of hackneyed phrase in in Vipassana circles. The pace and Karanicha, all conditions are impermanent. But it, it's, it's not a doctrine to grasp, but uh, a suggestion, or a kind of pointer at, at, at observing. Is it right? Is that really true? Or also, can you find Sangharas that are permanent? You, know, you can challenge yourself. You don't have to believe all sankaras are impermanent because it's in it. we chant that in the morning, the Buddha said so, and it's in the scriptures. The point is not, this is not a doctrinal religion. It's a religion of awakened, awakening to, to see for yourself. Santitiko, Akariko, Ehipasko, Panaiko, Bajatang, which we chant every morning, isn't it? Apparent here and now, timeless. Encouraging investigation. Ehi is is uh, in the, it's more like, come and see, you know, find out. It's more like a invitation. No, like Ehi, I think is a like in the first ordinations for bhikkhus, Buddha first one was called Ehi Bhikkhu. Come forth, the bhikkhu. What if there was? We didn't have these long procedures that we have now. Ehi Pasiko. So it's uh, come and see for yourself. So, then, um, Dhamma is, you know, the, the awakening, the sense of awakened awareness, of being aware, of mindfulness, sati sampachanya, sati panya. This is the Buddha. This is, Buddha means awakened. So, so it's, instead of coming from a personal scenario of me, Ajahn Sumedho, I, I'm like this, and I, I'm, you know, I've got to sort myself out as a person in order to become a better Buddhist in the future or an enlightened being in the future. Uh, 
you know, for, on a, interpreting everything through my personal identities, we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So this is taking refuge in this awareness, this sati satipanya. Buddha knows the Dhamma. When 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 refuge is in awareness, then we can see Dhamma. We we see things in terms of Dhamma rather than in the the uh, complicated terms of me, uh, my personality. Me as a person, I complicate everything. I can make everything very complicated personally. So, you know, when I first ordained, I, I was just so utterly complicated, totally confused because I was, uh, it seemed like I'd be caught in a, in a sticky web of neurotic fears and, and, uh, desires. So, <laughs> incredibly complicated, confused person. And yet, what what uh, drew me into the monastic form was some kind of intuition, isn't it? Something that that uh, you know I couldn't claim it as some kind of personal quality, but I felt this this inclination, this attraction, this kind of pull toward the monastic life, especially as I witnessed it in Thailand. So that in spite of the, this complicated neurotic person, uh, there was also, uh, you know, another, something that was operating that I wasn't conscious of and I couldn't claim or even understand, but it certainly seemed to direct me into the right, put me in the right direction. Then in, in monastic life, of course, the whole monastic form is for this, uh, encouraging, uh, and, and skillfully developing the, um, this awareness that we put in the conventions of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So the Buddha knows the Dhamma knows the way it is. So in the, in this particular incarnation of a human being, we find ourselves in, incarnated in these human bodies at this moment, conscious human forms that we are strongly identified with. You know, that we suffer a lot because of that identity, because identities were something that is 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 uh, is very artificial. It's not real, not true. It's very uh, you know complicated. In uh, modern life, we we have become very complicated. You know, we're not like tribal people or simple people anymore. We're we're really neurotic. Western Western civilization is basically very neurotic. Everything is ten times more than it is. <clears throat> Thousand times more. <laughs> so with Buddha knowing the Dhamma, it's going back to ultimate simplicity, isn't it? Because we're, we're beginning to see things as they are, to recognize that all our identities, attachment, fears and desires are not ours. You know, and we, 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 we're not that. That's not me or mine. It is what it is. It's not a denial or a dismissal. It's not dismissing anything. But it's recognizing that in this awareness, of anger 
The awareness isn't angry. So then anger becomes Dhamma, doesn't it? It becomes Sape Sankara Anicca. We've seen it in terms of what it is. It's a Dhamma. It's a, a Dhamma includes conditioned and unconditioned. It's a, it's a all-inclusive word that includes everything. So just recognize that this great gift that we all have, our humanity, this is a, a human human uh, one of the, the why in the Buddhist world it's considered a great fortune to be born as a human being because the, the, we're certainly you know we've got a lot in common with the animal realm and so it's uh, you know emotionally we're you know dogs cats have emotions and they're intelligent and and uh, they feel they've got they're sensitive, conscious, feeling, emotional beings. But they 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 they, uh, they, they can't reflect on experience. They are they become what they are. I can't speak for dogs and cats, really. I just assume that. I'm not not putting down the animal world. I'm not a speciesist. But in terms of the human human world, the the uh, the human world, I can I can speak from experience. It's like this. And the, of course, the Buddha's teaching: the Buddha was a human being. You know, he was born. Uh, as the uh, you know the historical Buddha was born had a human mother human father had sense organs had body physical body emotions uh, and so forth just like like I have and so the the teaching and the the insight is one uh, that that he discovered but he Recognized was based on this sati panya. Not in, he wasn't trying to, you know, he spent the first six years of his samana life uh, trying to refine conscious experience through, through concentration practices and asceticism. Then in the in the uh, context of enlightenment, he he gave all that up, trying to control, refine, and, and that, and recognize, and sat under the Bodhi tree, and just recognize the way it is, the simple reality of here and now. So, so this is where the, during this retreat, to encourage you to to contemplate this to, and to also recognize your own potential you know you, this is something that is uh, is not you know difficult or beyond your ability it's not like something that you just you know you're if you if you conceive yourself always in negative terms that you can't do it because you're you know you you've created yourself as somebody who can't do it it's all the problem lies in in the the attitudes the perceptions you you're attached to in describing yourself so uh, i'm just encouraging you to to begin to look at that the way you see yourself well, which is aware of what you think you are. You know, you begin to n- notice that 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 your your ego, like Sakya Ditti, they put it in the Pali term Sakya Ditti, the self view, 
is a creation. And we can observe that. We can observe our self. The way we hold ourselves and create ourselves. And that which is aware, you can't claim on a personal level. You can't say it. Ajahn Sumedho uh, is a uh, is a mindful and and wise person. Can't claim it. Because even Ajahn Sumato is only a convention. And so you're, you're, you're moving to that, you're beginning to rest in that place of awareness. Learning to, and so it's a matter of recognizing it and resting in it, relaxing into being aware rather than being somebody who's always trying to get something, trying to get rid of your anger or defilements and trying to make yourself into a better person. You're you're awakening to that pattern, that way we we see ourselves through Sakyaditi, and you begin to see that, that that that's that's just you know that's uh, it is what it is. We're not trying to to judge it and say you shouldn't have any sakaditi at all or any you shouldn't be selfish and you shouldn't have any self views. Then that's getting back to idealism again. But learning learning from your pride, conceit. Uh, your pers- your personality, your ego, recognizing it, and so you're using it for in terms of dhamma, seeing it in terms of the way it is, rather than through uh, delusion and attachment. So in Thailand, I had uh, we had a very we had the uh, celebration of Lung Po Cha on the 12th to the 16th of this month. He died on the 16th of January in 1992 and then they had the uh, cremation in January 16th, 1993. And ever since then, January 16th has been an important day in the, for the disciples of Lung Po Cha. But uh, for me, I'm I'm now one of the senior monks there. I'm one of the old timers in terms of conventional reality, and and so it's uh, it's rather. Uh, you know, I go there now, and it's uh, most of the monks I don't know. You know, there are a thousand monks. There at, at Wat Pa Pong, and uh, only only the 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 elder ones, my age, <laughs> did I know, and there are not very many of those, and and all the rest were young, middle-aged and young monks. Uh, I have a clue who, who they are. They all look the same, <laughs> shaven head. Ochre-colored robes, <laughs> but for the, but still, they, I find the the life of monasticism, and this is, you know, for me, is a tremendous uh, kind of joy in in the life, and just being with say, these monks and and with. Uh, uh, and with the, especially the ones that I trained with 38 years ago. And uh, I was, went to a, a dana in Bangkok. They were casting, there's this casting ceremony, Buddha Rupa. Uh, and Ajahn Liam, Lung Po Liam, who's now the abbot of Wat Bapong, and some of the senior bhikkhus from Uborn, uh, Ajahn and Naik and 
people like that attended this dana in Bangkok and as a, just such a pleasant, joyful feeling to to see that once it survived and get through <laughs> that make it through because it's a it's a rocky road. Not because it really is, but because we make it so. You know, it's uh, we you have to recognize, you know, the the difficulties of relinquishing, letting go. Because uh, it's like a, you know, they call it a holocaust, a total burning. Uh, total relinquishment, total surrender, putting it in terms of, of a total experience, rather scary actually when you think of it in those terms. Couldn't we just do it, you know, sometime? <laughs> Have a holiday. <laughs> but, uh, it, but then the, um, the what we're letting go of, you know, like, like this. It the second and third noble truths are about letting go of the world, letting go, and the and the reality, the recognition of letting go. Not it's not just a theory or some ideal that we're holding to. You're actually exploring, investigating, knowing, letting go is like this. So when we, our attachments, we always use your attachments, your obsessions, your whatever, you know, thing that really you're attached to, whatever it might be. Use that to study, to, to investigate attachment, not just to judge yourself as someone who's attached uh, but to to really notice when you when it, when it really be attached to something and notice it what is upadana you know doesn't help to say I shouldn't be attached to anything but you know when I I throughout my monastic life I've always used my attachments to to really notice when I find out I'm I'm really attached to something. I, 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 I look at that. The point, because that's where I suffer. Like here, like being the abbot of Amravati, you know, being attached to an ideal of what I want for Amravati. It's a very good ideal, you know, very, the ideal is very good. What I want this monastery to be. But the attachment to that ideal, I'm always suffering because it's never, I can't make it, I can't make this place live up to that ideal. So in letting go of that, it doesn't mean the ideal, I'm throwing the ideal away, but I'm not attaching to it anymore. So it's more like guiding and moving in that direction, but not not demanding out of out of ignorance and attachment to to high mindedness. And then always suffering because uh you know the you always you feel a lot of fear around things when they aren't going well or people disrobing or people complaining or blaming, things like this, and then get very, uh, you know, feel a lot of uh, suffering from that. But then learning to use that in the position you're in, the kind of character you have and, and the way that you suffer, that's something to learn from to understand, to let go, to realize cessation, third noble truth, to realize, make it, see the reality of cessation, 
all conditions cease. So all conditions take you to cessation if you let them. They all end. And that ending, you know, if we're aware, then we, we, we know when they cease. And from that is the path or the, the samaditi, right understanding or right view. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. Thank you.